Each year, world leaders gather in New York for the United Nations General Assembly. This is where heads of state come together to discuss the biggest issues facing the planet. One of the most anticipated speeches this year came from Macky Sall, the president of Senegal and chairman of the African Union, the entity which represents the continent. The event took place this past September, only two months before the UN Conference on Climate Change, and President Sall was adamant that Africa held solutions to the global climate crisis. We also have Africa as a provider of solutions with an area of 30 million kilometers squared. It's human resources, more than 60% of the world's arable land. It's mineral, forest, water, and energy resources. Yes, we have the Africa of solutions. As the world industrialized, it destroyed its nature. But Africa today still has 30% of the world's biodiversity, one-third of the world's fresh water, and massive forests. This is part of what President Saul is referring to when he talks about an Africa of solutions. But this series is not just about climate change, nor is it just about saving endangered species, or even just about development in Africa. It's about all of the above. It's about a different vision of conservation, African-led conservation that breaks down the typical silo and fortress mentalities to connect the dots and see the interrelationship of all three, saving animals, addressing climate change, and ensuring economic and social development throughout Africa and even beyond. Hello, I'm Carol Pino, host of Africa Forward. This season, our podcast is brought to you by the African Wildlife Foundation, AWF, and produced by FP Studios. Last season, we looked at big infrastructure, roads, electricity, technology, all propelling Africa ahead. This season, we look at the green infrastructure, Africa's tremendous biodiversity, and how African-led conservation may not only help save elephants, rhinos, and other endangered species, it could, as President Macky Sall said, be an essential part of the global solution to climate change. And that man-made infrastructure we covered last season? What's well, not as far apart from the green infrastructure as you might think? Lee White, Gabon's Minister of Water, Forest, the Sea and Environment, explains this is not about what is happening in a faraway land. The Congo Basin forests hold about eight years of global carbon emissions. So if we lose the Congo Basin, we lose the fight against climate change. There's no chance of keeping 1.5 alive or 2 degrees alive without the Congo Basin standing. To see how the Congo Basin affects your life, take a deep breath. Wherever you are in the world, you have oxygen to breathe because of the Congo Basin, considered the second lung of the world. Throughout this season, we'll be showing how we need to rethink conservation in Africa, from a Western model that walls off Africans to one that puts people at the center of conservation and sees Africans driving their own conservation agenda. But Africans tend to see themselves not as the owners, but as the stewards of this biodiversity. We are the custodians of our world heritage, but it's owned by the global community. And Africans are so accepting of that idea. That's Kadu Sabunya, CEO of the African Wildlife Foundation, one of the big players in African conservation. Sabunya is from Uganda and stands alone amongst his peers in conservation as the only African CEO. 
And this is important to note, especially when you look back at the history of conservation in Africa. The Western model separated people from nature. It was a fortress model. Meanwhile, Africans who for millennia had coexisted and protected nature, they were often denied access to their own traditional lands. In Africa, conservation has been protecting wildlife and nature, and that has alienated a lot of people who we need in order to secure our objectives and goals in conservation. One of Kenya's best-known parks is Masai Mara. But in the creation of the park in 1961, the Maasai pastoralists were forced to move off of their land. Daniel Ole Sambu is a Maasai activist for indigenous rights. All the parks, major parks in Kenya, they're in Maasai country. 80% of all wildlife in Kenya are actually outside the parks. They are in Maasai lands. Several studies have shown that indigenous groups have been far more successful in protecting biodiversity than the protectionist approach. According to the World Bank, while indigenous people make up just 5% of the world's population, they safeguard 80% of the world's biodiversity. Milka Chepkurur is also a Kenyan activist for indigenous people, though from a different group than Sambu. She is from the Sangwar indigenous peoples. You've heard them say that conservation is a foreign concept. It's because someone sat somewhere to define what it is, but for us indigenous people, it is our way of life. It is what we do when we wake up, when we go collect our water, it is in a way that is sustainable. When we collect the firewood that we use for fuel to cook, when we collect our medicine, it's been how we have done it you know, over the years that has made sure that these things are there. And that is what conservation is from our point of view. While Chep Career has a master's degree in anthropology, she says her real education happened in her rural lands, where knowledge is passed from generation to generation. They have lived with wildlife and nature around them for thousands of years and have incredible knowledge about how ecosystems work, knowledge that could be essential for addressing climate change but has barely been tapped. Looking at the results, AWF Sabunya says it's clear that Western conservation has not worked. We have now where we found ourselves losing 35,000 elephants a year. Giraffes being listed recently on endangered lists. Lions are half the population they were in my lifetime in 1970s. Because of that protectionist approach, that has done damage to conservation on this continent. Najib Balala, Kenya's cabinet secretary for Ministry of Tourism and Wildlife, offers some history. Well, first of all, let's accept it. Uh, All this conservation agenda was a colonial issue. And uh, then out of Africa was born. Uh, And the whole romanticizing of conservation and tourism came in. And then it boosted tourism and economies and conservation. Out of a land of beauty, mystery, and majesty. Out of Africa. Out of Africa, a well-known memoir by Karen Blixen, a Danish aristocrat. Written during colonialism, it covers her life in Kenya, then known as British East Africa. The book and later the movie most definitely did romanticize Africa and wildlife. But one thing was accurate. 
It showed a system where Africa's beauty was there for foreigners to enjoy. Haile Mariam de Selene, the former prime minister of Ethiopia, agrees that conservation and tourism were inextricably linked. Conservation, and especially protected areas designation, uh, when it started, the whole issue was the land was ample, uh, you know, there is very less population, and the forests were intact. So the whole idea is for tourism. But then everything changed. Population has grown tremendously. There is a pressure on uh, those lands by the human intervention. The global community has industrialized. Global warming has become one of the main issues that has to be tackled. So the whole scenario has changed. But now it, it has become a global asset that has to be protected. The climate crisis changed everything and made it so there had to be a more complex approach to conservation. A prime example is what happened in Kenya. We have tamed poaching in, in Kenya, uh, but again, uh, we are affected by climate change. It's almost 20 times uh, more loss of elephants due to climate change than due to poaching in Kenya. Daniel Ole Sambu has seen how climate change is impacting conservation and increasing human-wildlife conflict. Uh, human population is biting in, wildlife population. So we are eating into land, and the land is not increasing. That is exactly what has really increased human-wildlife conflict. And then the resources are becoming smaller and smaller. Rivers are drying up, climate change is biting in. Pasture is not there. Trees are being cut bushes being cleared for agriculture, then this wildlife and livestock will not have anywhere to graze. Conservationists often base their success on increases to animal populations. But as human populations grow, the negotiation for space between humans and nature becomes more intense. The agenda is just conserve, conserve, conserve. When you conserve, and you conserve well, you will increase the numbers. How much is enough for conservation? How many animals? should we have at one given time? What's our current capacity? We cannot just say we are open with no limits. In a model that looks at saving animals, the sky is the limit. But in a model that puts people at the center, the questions of sustainability and capacity are paramount. A conservation model that romanticizes animals and nature often ignores the very real dangers people face, particularly as populations of both people and animals increase. That's when the negotiation for space becomes even more difficult, and at times, even deadly. Kenya, like many countries, pays compensation for harm to property, injuries, and even death caused by human-wildlife conflict. Balala says the cost is huge. In the last uh, four years, five years since I came into this portfolio, I have paid over $30 million in compensation. $30 million in compensation. I have an outstanding bill of another $40 million backlog of people we have not paid yet. And we don't get any support from any external funding apart from government of Kenya. So it's huge destruction. Later on, we'll hear about the animal that safari goers love, but is most responsible for that destruction. But first, one of the biggest problems with a fortress model of conservation is that the cost becomes prohibitive. 
Fortresses have to be constantly protected. Animals have to be able to roam in and out, so the parks have to be porous. The parks are in remote areas. Some of them are huge. The Serengeti in Tanzania is about the size of Connecticut. Kruger in South Africa is the size of New Jersey, a state that has nearly 30,000 police. No government can afford that many park rangers. But there's another reason why the cost of the protection model becomes prohibitive. Money is going in, but little is coming out. We have inherited the old style of conservation in preservation. We have not looked at the real thing of the innovative way of benefiting from conservation. Or how do we reconcile the two of conservation and wildlife economy? Preservation is about protecting wildlife and keeping it pristine. African-led conservation is about sustainable use of Africa's natural resources. And it's about understanding that if people are expected to conserve biodiversity, they must also be able to sustainably benefit from it. Zabunya says that's what putting people at the center of conservation is all about. People at the center means that conservation is connected to the livelihoods of people. It also means prioritizing African voices and seeing Africans as the drivers of their own conservation agenda. 30% of the biodiversity is found on this continent, and the rest of the world treats Africa like they're going to come and help Africa to conserve or to protect this biodiversity and not giving a credit of why actually it's there. How come still Africa has 30%? It's because of our lifestyle which is compatible to nature we live in. Edwin Tambara, the director of global leadership at AWF, is from Zimbabwe, but he lives in Washington and often has to go to Capitol Hill to explain African-led conservation to U.S. lawmakers. His goal is to make sure Africans get a seat at the table when big decisions are being made. If at the center of it, everyone recognizes and realizes the importance of African leadership for conservation to be successful, then they are going to listen to the voices of African leaders at all levels. It's not just political, it's from community to administrative leaders at the local level to private sector to political, all layers of of the society. Tambara adds that people at the center includes people at all levels, not just leaders. If you look at the history of creation of protected areas on the continent, resulted in violations of human rights in many places. So how do we make sure that we don't continue to perpetuate that? We bring in solutions that make sure that, again, people are at the center, they are involved They are fully consulted and on board with whatever conservation programs that we are shaping. At the recent African Protected Areas Congress, held in Kigali, Rwanda, I talked with participants, whether they were from Africa or elsewhere, professional, students, young, old, urban or rural, one thing was clear. The passion for African-led conservation ran high. There has been a lot of externally driven agendas. It's high time we, the Africans, really had the final say on what needs to happen. Most of the biodiversity exists in Africa, and if Africans were to lead the conservation agenda, they have the tradi- both the traditional knowledge and also the int- intrinsic knowledge. Well, Africa has uh, conserved its resources for centuries. We still have challenges with 
resources, but we are leading the conservation. If you're dispossessed of your resources, why would you take care of it? So there's an absolute need for them to own their resources and then to benefit from them as they choose. We have a chance to get it right. We need to make better choices in terms of how we do conservation now. Uh, learning from the West and how they did theirs and the repercussions. The Western one, which was brought by the, the colonial countries, it was the fortress conservation. The, the former one uh, was considering the, the population as ignorant. This uh, community-based conservation system or model is involving the skills and the knowledge of indigenous people or local communities. They are key stakeholders so that the conservation can be uh, successful. They engage the local community in decision-making, easy participatory conservation. So the African voice is really important, so we, we have to use it. We need an African-led, community-led model that puts people at the center of conservation. In other words, conservation has to work for people. It's often said that the first step in solving a problem is admitting you have a problem to begin with. Alison Catalano is not African, and she says she's not even a conservationist. She's more interested in how people learn, particularly how they learn from failure, which was the focus of her Ph.D. at Imperial College London. She's the lead author of a paper on learning from failure in conservation. While many businesses see failure as a learning opportunity, Catalano says conservation groups don't tend to talk about failure. She notes a variety of reasons, including concerns over jeopardizing future funding. Most of her work revolves around how a lack of reflection impacts conservation. But as we look at a model that puts people at the center of conservation, it's interesting to hear what she found on why projects fail. The number one reason around that was to do with people. So this was specifically relationships between stakeholders, team dynamics within the group, problems with conservationists working in local communities and not understanding how local communities function. I also heard from a number of people specifically working in the African context, um, a level of cynicism about how projects are conducted historically in Africa. As Africans working in conservation in Africa, their voices, I don't think, are heard very often. These things are not discussed widely. They're not published for other people to reflect upon. This is something that came out also strongly in the interviews and focus groups that I conducted, that there was difficulty in navigating the relationships with local communities and a reluctance to adapt to the realities that were on the ground. So there was a disconnect between how the project was shaped sort of at the headquarters level and what the realities were on the ground for the people actually trying to implement the conservation project. Anything from not producing materials that were in the right language to not recognizing what the power dynamics were in the communities in which people were working. So attributing different levels of responsibility to different groups within the community and not really understanding where the power was structured there. Other people talked about coming in with preconceived notions about how a project should be done 
and what a success would look like. And some respondents discussed a lack of reflection on how the progress was being made and discussions with local community members to understand how it was being perceived in the community. It came down to us not understanding our role in the community and how we were being perceived in the community and what that meant for us moving forward with our project. So what happens when a community is not just listened to, but actually put in charge? And what if instead of walling off nature, we brought them in to co-manage their natural resources? The Southern African country of Zimbabwe has been a pioneer in African-led, community-driven conservation. In 1989, Zimbabwe launched Campfire, the community's area management program for indigenous resources. It's an innovative program that pioneered the right of communities to benefit from wildlife that lived on their land. Patience Gondiwa is director of Zimbabwe's Park and Wildlife Management Authority. They oversee Campfire. She says protecting the country's rich biodiversity is a responsibility of every Zimbabwean. Conservation for Zimbabwe is not top-down, it's bottom-up, and it's multi-stakeholder. Nature conservation in our country is everyone's business. Before independence in 1980, the country was known as Rhodesia and was one of two independent African states ruled by a white minority. The other, of course, was South Africa. And like its neighbor, oppression under white minority rule was horrific. Gondiwa says the difficult period under white rule deeply affected conservation. The people of Zimbabwe were living in harmony with nature. And then colonialism happened, laws emerged. There were some good things that came out. There were some also very bad uh, precedents and uh, dispossession in terms of uh, ownership. It gave birth to protected areas and alienation of people from nature. That's the Waldorf style of conservation, saving nature by keeping it away from people or more specifically, keeping local populations away from animals while the wealthy still had access to enjoy the natural beauty. After independence in 1980, Rhodesia became Zimbabwe. The country's new president, Robert Mugabe, carried out a series of land reforms that were called for in the peace agreement and were aimed at a more equitable distribution of land, which was almost entirely owned by white Zimbabweans. The issue became contentious with the U.S. and Europe harshly criticizing Zimbabwe and eventually imposing sanctions, which led to economic and political isolation. But Gandhiwa also refers to some good laws that were enacted before independence, specifically the Parks and Wildlife Act of 1975, which proclaimed that ownership of wildlife was given to whomever owned the land. That act revolutionized conservation. While Rhodesia's white settlers may have owned almost all the farmland, Wildlife tends to roam in the drier regions that were communally owned. That land may not have been good for agriculture, but it was perfect for tourism. Wildlife became an asset that could benefit the communal landowners, and so it became worth safeguarding for future generations. The law also became the legal basis for developing campfire. Campfire started in the late 1980s to make sure that the local communities that are living with wildlife are empowered 
to manage the resources that they live with, mainly wildlife and their habitat. In Zimbabwe, I would say about 70% of Zimbabwe's population, it lives on the countryside. It lives in the communal area. Those people are given the rights to utilize wildlife. Campfire could either be considered the birth of people-based African-led conservation or just getting back to the way things always were. It was actually to restore the rights that the people always had because they had been utilizing these resources and living with them sustainably for it since time immemorial. With Campfire, communities decide how to use the land. They can build lodges, operate safari businesses, big game hunting, or more recently, adventure tourism. The community itself can also lease lands to a private developer on a build, operate, and transfer kind of model. Sometimes they can have an investor then that builds the, the infrastructure and then lease uh, the facility to a tourism operator or to a safari operator paying rentals for, to, to sustain uh, community projects. According to Rafael Carraza, an Ambire Rural District Council official, communities are even finding other revenue streams from their land. When we talk of campfire in Ambire, we're not talking about animals. We are also getting a lot of money through the carbon credits. This puts communities entirely in the driver's seat as far as how to use their lands, but especially how to use the income. Committees themselves should be able to manage their accounts on their own and have a meeting to say, okay, we've got $70,000 in the account. What are we going to use it? What are our priorities? Then they say, oh, we want to electrify that school. So, you know, we want a clinic. Income from campfire communities is considered public funds. They are audited every year. And if the money doesn't go back to the community, those responsible can be sued in court. Campfire brings in revenue, but Gondiwa notes it also creates employment. And 100% of the staff that are working in that conservancy is from that community. And that is what we want to see. Conservation by the people, for the people, and making it count at grassroots level. And there's another important benefit for conservation. Communities now have become the first line of defense against serious international illegal wildlife trade and trafficking. And because they benefiting now from their resource, so they wouldn't want anybody to come and steal from them because poaching is stealing from everybody. Campfire has created a business approach to conservation, ensuring that it's not dependent on taxes or donations. Since 2001, it's been self-financing. And even during COVID, when other park systems were cutting back, Zimbabwe recruited 100 more park rangers to protect this valuable resource. But Gondiwa wants to make clear, community-based tourism is not just about having women sell beads and crafts outside of a lodge or hiring a local group to come and dance for the tourists. Those attractions may enable safari operators to tout themselves as doing quote-unquote eco-tourism. But Gondiwa says there's a world of difference between seeing a local community as a beneficiary of tourism and seeing them as a true partner. We appreciate it as uh, the showcasing of community culture and sociocultural tourism, but it's not uh, about lip service. Uh, it's, 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 um, yeah, it's a joke.
uh, if uh, anybody thinks that is a community involvement, they are harboring the biggest liabilities, including loss of life for living with these charismatic species that we admire and adore so much. So they must get the lion's share of the benefits. Since Campfire started more than 30 years ago, it has spread throughout Zimbabwe and encouraged other similar programs throughout Southern and East Africa, and even outside of Africa. Around the same time that Zimbabwe was launching Campfire and finding ways to live more harmoniously with its wildlife, Kenya was struggling with an unprecedented level of illegal poaching. To bring attention to the problem, they had a very different kind of fire, a massive bonfire, burning 12 tons of confiscated elephant ivory. Kenyan authorities were preparing to burn a stockpile of over 100 tons of elephant tusks on Saturday. Officials believe it to be the largest single destruction of ivory in history. The grisly images were meant to shock the world because there was a very real possibility that elephants in Kenya could become extinct. The publicity stunt worked. Less than two months later, the Convention on the International Trade of Endangered Species, CITES, enforced a worldwide ban on ivory sales. But in southern Africa, the situation is quite different. In 1900, Zimbabwe had under 5,000 elephants. Today, they have closer to 100,000. But the country with the most elephants is their neighbor, Botswana, with 150,000 elephants. Dr. Kabela Senyatso, director of Botswana's Department of Wildlife and National Parks, explains that 150,000 is too much of a good thing. There are sections of Botswana where uh, human-elephant conflict is very high, such that people's livelihoods, daily routines have been disrupted. And so when daily routines such as kids going to school, uh, a farmer who cannot get to his field are disrupted, then it, it is saying you've got too many elephants. In the 90s, it was determined that Botswana's carrying capacity for elephants was around 60 to 65,000. They've got double that now. And that study was done when Botswana had about half as many people. A child in the U.S. or Europe might go to sleep with a plush stuffed elephant on their bed or hear Barbar and other bedtime stories with adorable elephants. The reality of living with too many elephants can be a nightmare. Botswana's ambassador to the U.S., Onkokame Kitsu Mokela, previously served as the Minister of Environment and Tourism. He's often having to explain the situation to Americans. Well, by sheer size and volume, they just walk through your village. If you drill a borehole, want to feed your family, have a little garden, they'll come and knock your tank over to drink the water. And they can smell water. They can smell water. So it's very dangerous to be in an elephant-infested area. Ambassador Mokela says having an overcapacity of elephants is also hard on conservation. Elephants are very destructive from the point of view they eat a lot. So if they are themselves a danger to other fauna and flora in the area. So the more the elephants, the less the trees, the less other species are able to use that habitat. Tourists see elephants in protected areas during the day and from the safety of a safari vehicle. A local villager would more typically see them while walking or on a bicycle and in the dark outside of protected areas. 
It's a deadly combination, explains Ambassador Mokeda. They kill, and we've lost a lot many lives in Botswana because of this elephants. Ask almost any safari driver, and they will tell you. Elephants are the animals they fear most, and with good reason, says Dr. Senyatso. I think the elephant is probably the only species where you're not safe, uh, even when you're inside a vehicle. Botswana, like many countries, compensates people if dangerous wildlife damages property or kills livestock. Dr. Senyatso notes 60 to 75 percent of the claims are due to elephants, but that's only a fraction of the real cost. There was a a big debate around a, a, a tusker that was shot. In the two weeks that we were debating the hunting of that elephant, um, we lost two people to elephant attacks. We could uh, be emotional about the, the big tuskers. Uh, the reality is two families have lost breadwinners. The situation became so dire that in 2019, it rose to the level of the presidential campaign. People accuse the government of caring more about animals than people. After the election, Botswana's new president, Mukwitze Masisi, lifted the ban on trophy hunting that had been put in place by his predecessor. The reaction internationally was swift. Animal rights activists launched petitions. Tourists canceled safaris in Botswana. And Ellen DeGeneres warned in a tweet, President Masisi, for every person who wants to kill elephants, there are millions who want them protected. We are watching. As President Masisi gave a speech in Las Vegas, a protester launched her fury. President Masisi, how can you say you care about wildlife when you lifted the ban on killing elephants? This is not the answer. You have blood on your hands. In fact, big game hunting is legal in most Southern African countries. Sustainable hunting, particularly in areas overpopulated with animals, can actually be a useful conservation tool. A hunting license for big game sells for tens of thousands of dollars, and those funds go towards conservation efforts, like Botswana's Conservation Trust Fund. But what exactly is the threshold for sustainable hunting? According to Dr. Senyatso, it's 3% of the total population. Last year, Botswana issued 270 permits, less than 0.3%. Animal rights activists say there are other alternatives, but Ambassador Mokeda says he's yet to see one that works. Elephants don't like chili. And we bought a lot of chili. We tried to get communities to bang dishes and everything to make noise. Government has built schools everywhere to bring education as close to the children as possible. But then don't forget, elephants don't care. They walk right through the school. So we've been through it all. President Masisi has offered elephants to other countries, and there's some discussions with Mozambique. Ambassador Mokela facetiously suggests another option. We would love to send some to Washington and some to New York. More promising are recent discussions with Angola. Botswana's northern neighbors suffered a long civil war that ended in 2002, during which elephants, like people, migrated to safer areas, most often Botswana, further swelling their numbers. The ambassador is optimistic about Angola's current conservation priority, removing landmines in areas where elephants had traditionally roamed. It facilitates the migration of elephants into Angola. It also we opened up elephant corridors. Botswana and other elephant-rich countries in southern Africa understand the ongoing risks for elephants in Kenya and East Africa. But as populations swell in southern Africa, 
they bristle at the idea that elephant products should be permanently banned. In fact, they would like to see the worldwide ban on ivory sales lifted. Dr. Senyatsa recognizes that change is unlikely. More often than not, science is not uh, at the forefront, but rather emotions are at the forefront in terms of how we deal with elephants. Ambassador Michaela sums up his government's position. Watching elephants on TV, they look like very nice creatures. I can assure you, they are wild and they do kill people. And our people's lives matter. It might sound crazy to Western ears to even put the idea of legalizing ivory sales back on the table. But maybe this is a viable way for helping to preserve African lands and wildlife. Again, this may be one of the starkest examples of how it's so hard for Westerners to actually fathom what it's like to live amongst wildlife and why it's essential that those who are living this existence are in charge of determining what's best. Later on in this series, we're going to explore other innovative approaches Africans are developing to address conservation, as well as climate change and economic development. For me, a forest is, is, is a place of dreams. It's a place of love. It's a, it's a place of travel. It's a place of passion. It's a place of inspiration, for instance. It's a place of all beauty. Thanks so much for listening to Africa Forward. I'm Carol Pinot, the host and executive producer of the program. Our producers include Rosie Julin, Yore Wu, and Rob Sachs. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave us a review. It helps spread the word about what we're doing. Africa Forward second season is brought to you by the African Wildlife Foundation and FP Studios. All opinions and views in this podcast do not necessarily reflect that of the African Wildlife Foundation or FP Studios. For more information on African Wildlife Foundation, please check out awf.org. And for more on FP Studios, you can go to foreignpolicy.com and click on podcasts.